The hi-hat is a crucial part of any drummer's set. It's two cymbals that sit sort of sandwiched on top of one another and you control them with your foot. The bottom cymbal is supposed to be heavier than the top cymbal. And if they're set up that way, you get that nice chick sound when you close them with your foot. Of course, if you put the heavy one on top, your drum set will immediately explode in flames the minute you play it. So be careful. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about music where the hi-hat is top-heavy, and music where the hi-hat is bottom-heavy, and occasionally music where both hi-hat symbols weigh the exact same amount. We've got a cool song to talk about this episode, one that you've probably heard, but that you'll probably hear differently at the end of this episode. So find a comfortable place to sit, turn up the volume, and enjoy the show. So hopefully your drum set won't actually explode if you put the bottom hi-hat on top, though older sets of hi-hats are actually a little closer in weight. I've mentioned this on the show before, but I've spent the last year in the process of refurbishing my dad's old 1960s Ludwig kit, and the hi-hats that he had, they were like Zildjian Avidis hi-hats from the 1960s, they're really close in weight, and they're a little bit weird. I actually just replaced them with a set of modern Zildjian hi-hats where there's a significant weight difference between the two hi-hats, and the difference is certainly noticeable. Drums are so much fun, especially vintage drums. I've had a great time working on this kit, though I can see how quickly this sort of thing gets expensive. I recently got a few new cymbals at a really cool drum shop here in town called Revival Drums. I've also shouted them out on the show before, but they're such a cool space and they have all of these beautiful vintage kits. They just moved to a new location and it's just like nothing but stuff you kind of want to buy, which is dangerous. Their cymbal room is just this beautiful room full of cymbals. And I walk in thinking, okay, I'm going to get one thing. And then, you know, you walk out getting two things or three things. I do try to restrict myself to when I've actually made some progress on the instrument. I've been practicing a lot of drums over the last year, getting a whole lot better. Felt like it was time to maybe upgrade my cymbals a little bit, and um, it'll probably be a while before I upgrade them again, because in the end, it comes down to how you play the instrument, not really the instrument that you're playing. However, if you have a cool vintage music shop in your town, maybe a drum shop, maybe somewhere where they sell vintage guitars, anything like that, I really do recommend going just hanging out, talking to people, getting to know the instruments there, and buying stuff there. Don't order all your stuff online. I know there's services like Reverb that are really great. It's a good way to save money, but go out to the shops in your town and support your local music shops because it's a tough world out there for uh, for local retail, and they can use all the help they can get. And shops like that are they're more than just a place to get musical instruments. They're also community hubs. They're you know a nice place to just go and see cool things and be with people and share music. So okay, that's my PSA for this episode: support your local music shops, especially vintage shops, and buy vintage music gear. Don't buy everything new. So anyways, welcome to the show, everyone. I'm so glad that you're here for another episode of Strong Songs. I'm looking forward to getting into this episode's song. Before we do, a couple of things. First of all, it's been nice to see so many Strong Songs listeners turning up over on Instagram. I've been using that service again. I kind of had been off of it for a few years, but I've been using it again mostly to just post pictures of stuff happening in my little project studio and lately my obsession with drum cymbals and occasionally, you know, a dog pic or pictures from Portland. But it's been nice to see listeners turning up over there. I also have been posting little teasers for these episodes 
episodes. You may have seen a teaser for this episode or for the last one. So you can find me over there at Kirk underscore Hamilton, and there will be a link to that in the show notes. Of course, if you want to ask a question for Strong Songs, send me an email at strongsongspodcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet at me at Kirk, K-I-R-K, Hamilton. And I have a whole bunch of good questions uh, sort of locked up in the hopper. Please send me more. I always want more questions. And more broadly, I just like hearing from listeners. So if you have any feedback, thoughts, music recommendations, anything else, feel free to hit me up. Strong Songs is a completely listener-supported show. If you're a new listener in 2020, which I know there are a few of you out there, you should know that this show is completely supported by my listeners via Patreon. Thank you so much to all of my Patreon backers. You can find half and whole note backers' names in the show notes. And if you like this show and you like what I'm doing, that is the biggest thing you can do to help me keep doing it. So head over to patreon.com slash strongsongs to find out more about that. Of course, the other things you can do are leave a review anywhere that you listen to this show. Thank you to everyone who's ever reviewed the show. I appreciate it. And also just tell your friends. I hear from people all the time who tell their friends about this show. You know, hey, you like music? Maybe you like this podcast about music. And I really appreciate people who spread the word as well. There are a lot of music podcasts out there. Most of them have really serious networks behind them or big backing. This is just me making this show. So that is the number one way that I grow the Strong Songs audience is by all of you telling your friends about it. Many of you have done so. The audience is continually growing for this show. So that's really cool. Keep doing that. I really appreciate it. All right, let's get into this episode's song. This is one I've wanted to talk about for a while because it's a song that I knew when it first was on the radio in the 1990s. It is very closely associated with a movie that was super popular when I was in high school, but I didn't hear it with fresh ears until many years later when I randomly got the album that it's on and heard it in the context of the album, and that completely changed it for me. It's an incredible song that I think maybe a lot of people, though being familiar with the song, aren't kind of aware of just how good it is. This is a song about a protagonist who is so desperate for love that she doesn't even care if it's good for her or bad for her. And when you feel that way, there's really only one thing you can say to the object of your desire. Yes, on this episode, we're going to be talking about the Cardigan's magically melancholy earworm, Love Fool. So for longtime Strong Songs listeners, you will probably remember that way back last year, I released a bonus episode called Five Albums That Shaped Me, in which I detailed five of the albums, not the only five albums, but five albums that shaped me in some way or another. Among those five albums was the Cardigans' first band, On the Moon, which was released in 1996, and Love Fool, of course, was the most successful single on that album. Now, I already mentioned this, but this was a song that I heard one way, and then I heard it another way many years later. I knew this song, of course, because it was a huge radio hit when it was released in 1996. That was in big part because it was on the soundtrack to the Baz Luhrmann Romeo and Juliet movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes. Beautiful movie. A great song for that movie. Really fitting. And it was this huge radio hit that it was big on the radio, but it was also just very big among my friend group. A lot of my friends really liked that movie. And I heard this song just so many times that I didn't really think of it as a song. It was just a thing that was on the radio. Now, when I was in high school, I was really into jazz. I wasn't as into like pop music and rock music. I wasn't kind of digesting it as an actual recording, an actual song and a composition. It was just a song that was on the radio all the time. I kind of thought of it as this like dance tune. I didn't even think that there were real instruments playing. I kind of imagined it just being a bunch of, you know, keyboards and a singer. 
Okay, so cut to about maybe 10 years later. I've graduated from music school. I'm a professional jazz musician, definitely more into songwriting and learning guitar, learning how to write music, getting into, you know, rock bands and albums and production and all of this stuff. And someone recommends First Band on the Moon to me. I'm not actually even sure who it was or how I came to this album, but I listened to the album from the beginning. And in the middle of the album, this song came on and I heard it with completely fresh ears. It knocked me out. This whole album knocked me out. Suddenly I heard the individual musicians, each member of this band, the instruments they were playing, and more than anything else, how carefully considered and creative everything on this album is, and thus, you know, just how creative these musicians are and how they approach the way that they perform these songs. So what I want to do on this episode, more than anything, is capture that creativity and kind of convey it to everybody listening. So to do that, we're going to talk about this song, but we're actually going to talk a little bit more about First Band on the moon than we normally would. I want to put this song in the context of this album because, like I said, this is a great album. I really hope that you go listen to it. Like I said, it is one of my favorite albums. And I think that this song kind of transforms when you hear it as the centerpiece for the album rather than as a single on the radio that's associated with a movie. So before we get to that, just some vital stats. Love Fool was written by Nina Peschen and Peter Svensson, who are the vocalist and guitarist, respectively, for the Cardigans. They are a Swedish band. You will now get to hear me try to pronounce some Swedish names. So other than Peschen and Svensson, Lars Olaf Johansson is the keyboard player in the Cardigans. Bent Lagerberg plays drums, and Magnus Svenningsson plays the bass. Hopefully I did okay on that. Man, these Swedes, there's something in the water in Sweden because they make really good pop music, not since the ABBA Dancing Queen episode have I had to pronounce Swedish names on this show, but uh, yeah, hopefully I pulled it off. So this band was created by Svenningsson and Svensson, who were both heavy metal musicians. Obviously, black metal and heavy metal are really big in Scandinavia, and there is a darkness to the cardigans that I think is crucial to what makes their music work. You know, stylistically, this is pretty far from heavy metal, but in terms of some of what they're doing, you can see this kind of edge to it and this darkness to it. I think that makes this music distinct from your average happy pop music, if you just looked at the harmony and the melodies, you could imagine a sort of syrupy, sweet song written over this. But their lyrics, and actually a lot of their riffs and the guitar work, you know, it tends to get kind of edgy and kind of riffy and kind of dark and heavy. And I think that that mixture of sort of sourness and sweetness is beautiful. And there's also more obvious heavy metal influences. I mean, they straight up do a cover of Sabbath's Iron Man on this album that sounds very different from the original. This is what the original sounds like, of course. And this is what the Cardigans version sounds like. Kind of a delicate darkness, and I think that that is maybe the concept to uh, to center in on when thinking about the Cardigans. They're a very delicate band. Everything is very carefully placed. It's all very beautiful. Nina Peschen's voice is very light, and I think she has a lot of fun with that quality of her voice. She sounds like someone who should be singing straight ahead, beautiful things, and instead she mostly sings about kind of messed up emotions and messed up people. 
Love Fool, of course, is a great example of that. When I was young and I heard this song, all I really heard was, love me, love me. And I kind of thought it was like a love song. Like it's about, you know, oh, I just want to be loved, which that is what it's about. But it's actually like a really messed up song about a pretty sad person. So that was the first major thing that changed about my conception of this song. So before we even get into the particulars about the arrangement and the instruments, lots of cool stuff to get into there, just the fact that this is not a happy love song. This is a sad, almost cautionary tale about a person who has been completely rejected and is so desperate for love that they will take back the person who rejected them without any preconditions. I mean, listen to these lyrics from this song. I don't care if you really care as long as you don't go. So I cry, I pray, and I beg. Love me, love me. Say that you love me. Fool me. Go on and fool me. Pretend that you love me. Leave me. Just say that you need me. It's a really sad song about a pathetic person who's just in this kind of awful place that I, you know, I think a lot of us have been in where you're so desperate for someone to take you back that you don't realize that you're probably eventually going to be better off without them. Now, I don't mean to suggest that this is the first song to ever do really happy-sounding music with really messed-up lyrics. That's an old trick. A lot of people do it. In fact, that other Swedish band we've talked about, ABBA, their song Dancing Queen, it's not a sad song, really, but while it sounds very happy initially, it is actually, you know, there's a sort of a bittersweetness. The Cardigans are exploring similar territory, though much more heavy on the bitter part of bittersweet. Really, though, that contrast exists throughout this entire album, and when I started to hear Love Fool as the centerpiece for the album, I heard it in just a different context that helped me understand it as a song a little bit better. So we're going to do something a little bit different now. We're going to take a whirlwind tour of the tracks on the album that lead up to Love Fool. This is the seventh track on the album out of 11, and uh, so that means there are six tracks before it. So let's just go through each of those so you can kind of hear the sonic palette that the Cardigans are working with and the overall vibe and, you know, the, the table setting for this song that's sort of established before this song comes on. So the album opens with a song called Your New Cuckoo, which is a sort of song about new love. It features some lush, nice strings and really kind of driving nifty acoustic guitar part underneath the vocals. So that's a song about meeting. It's a song about new love, kind of an upbeat, happy one. The next one is Ben It. And this is a song about more like the end of a relationship from the perspective of someone who's maybe about to end it. And it's a woman saying, basically, I've been all of these things to you. And it's built over some actually really nasty riffs. This is where you start to see the metal influence behind the cardigans come out. There's some great guitar riffs going on underneath the verses to this song. Never 
So that's just sort of a bitter song from a woman who's kind of seen it all and has a handle on her relationship. The next track is called Heartbreaker, and this is the first time they really sonically change things up. The drums become super small and get kind of mixed over on the side. There's a horn section playing harmony, and it just becomes this much more delicate, beautiful thing about someone in a kind of abusive relationship who does not like herself. This is a great song. There's a lot of cool stuff on those first two tracks, but Heartbreaker is where the Cardigans start to show their range, just how many cool sounds they can get, how creative they can be in the studio with the arrangements of their songs. I mean, listen to what happens after this chorus. This theremin comes in. So the fourth song on the album continues from there. It's a song called Happy Meal 2, and it sort of starts low, but then it builds up. And this is a song about seducing someone and about, you know, preparing to win their love. I love that organ over on the left. It's like a pure sine wave. It's just so pure sounding. So these first four tracks have really kind of embraced a huge contrast in dynamics, all kinds of different creative arrangements. There's horns in, there's different instruments, they're using the keyboard really creatively in particular. They're doing a lot of stuff with backup vocals, with acoustic guitars, with electric guitars, with riffs, with neat harmony. There's so much going on already. And that's just musically, you know, lyrically, thematically. There's also a lot going on. This is a consistent album. This album is looking at love from a bunch of different perspectives. And more than anything, I think that it captures this sort of desperate inspiration and the darkness of love, you know, it's giving a very specific perspective on it. I'm not saying this is like the one true way of viewing love or anything, but it does feel like it's a consistent perspective that carries across all of the songs, even though they're all sort of snapshots from different places in different relationships. So next up is Never Recover. This one's just a banger. Uh, it has a really cool chorus that ends with this like nifty like 7-4 thing. Um, I really dig this song. So then comes the last song before Love Fool, which is called Step On Me. And this is yet another song that's about being so desperately in love that you kind of want someone to treat you badly. Go on and step on me is kind of the central lyric of this song. So 
so all of those songs establish a framework. They establish a context. This is why albums are worth listening to and why musicians release albums. I think this is such a great example of an album. Each of these songs works on its own, but they're also part of a greater whole. And there is this kind of coherent exploration of different perspectives on love happening even across just these first six songs. So when it's time for Love Fool to come on, it just feels different when you're not hearing it on the radio for the 50th time you know, on the weekly top 10, because it's associated with this movie that everybody's talking about, you're hearing it as the seventh song after those first six songs with that whole sonic template established, those five musicians playing those five instruments, adding a couple of instruments here or there, new textures, new sounds. You've heard Nina Passion's voice do all these different moods and energies. You've heard overdubbing and choruses and string sections and horn sections. It's kind of this whole palette that's been set forth. And then it's time for the this. That groove, that space, there's so much space. There's such a distinct feel to this song that when it comes on, it just, it feels like you've arrived somewhere and something has just opened up to you. So I mentioned this before, and maybe this sounds a little weird, but the thing is that hearing this song in the context of the album makes it sound like it's being played by a band, like it's being played by five people who are playing keyboard, guitar, bass, drums, and vocals. It's kind of got this four-on-the-floor dance beat, and it could be mistaken for an electronic dance tune, but it isn't. It's being played by a rock band, and once you've heard those first six songs that are just very clearly played by a very talented, creative, straight-ahead rock quintet, uh, you, you hear it differently, or at least I do. All right, so how do I hear this song? How can we hear it differently? Let's get into the song itself. So once you hear it as five people playing, it makes it a lot easier to kind of pick out who's doing what and actually it makes it much more interesting how spare and kind of, you know, how creatively this song uses space. So there are basically five elements to get your head around. There's the bass, there's the drums, there's the keyboard, there's the guitar, and there's the vocals. Sometimes there's a second guitar part that comes in, sometimes there are backup vocals, but basically it's those five things. And each of them are doing something very different, and they each exist in their own space. They actually all come in at the very beginning. So that very start has got everybody in, except, of course, for the vocals. Alright, so let's break those all down so that you can hear them. First, you've got the drums. Drums are over on the hi-hat doing a kind of 16th note thing. Pretty standard dance groove. The thing that really makes this sound like a dance song is that the kick drum is just playing quarter notes on the downbeats. Boom, 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 boom. That's called four on the floor is kind of a safe thing to call that. That's what a lot of people call it. Uh, the four on the floor carries through this whole song. So it's like four on the floor, 16th notes on the hi-hat. That's the thump on the kick drum and the sizzle on the hi-hat. Notice there is actually no pop, at least at this point in the very intro to the song, and then the snare drum comes in right when the verse comes in, when uh, when Pesson's vocals come in. Alright, so that's the drums. Bass is pretty easy to hear, really. It's just the bass. Um, what's cool is the way that the bass fits into the arrangement. All of these pieces kind of fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, all of these parts, they fit together in a really neat way. So let's do the bass next. Bass just starts on an A. This song kind of alternates between A minor and A major. A minor on the verses, A major on the choruses. So it just starts on an A. And then really quickly, it kind of goes into that groove. You know, once the, the pop is in, once the snare drum is in, the bass comes in and starts playing a groove kind of like this. 
It's a cool bass line because it leaves so much space. You know, it plays that first part, bum, 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 and then it leaves a whole measure of silence. So it's kind of a call, and then there's another instrument that does the response. That instrument, of course, is the keyboard. The second chord in this game that starts on an A minor, second chord is like a D minor 9 chord, and that's where the keyboard comes in. It doesn't even play the first chord, it just plays the second chord, and it's kind of this response with this big filled out kind of you know it sounds like a road some kind of an electric piano that really just fills out the stereo mix in a lovely way you know it's this very tight drum set very tight groove up on the hi-hat there it's a pretty punchy bass line that leaves a lot of space but then when that keyboard comes in it fills things out Very tasty, right? There's this like nice setup by the bass and a nice response by the keyboard. Really cool. There's one other element that's in on the groove that kind of ties the whole thing together. Listen to the actual recording and see if you can pick out what it is. So of course that last instrumental element is the electric guitar, which is only playing two notes actually. It's like not quite a chord, it's just an interval really. Um, it's these two notes. And, or at least that's where it starts. And the whole guitar part is usually, like sometimes there are triads, so three notes together, but a lot of times it's just two notes. And it's put in this place that's kind of like a clave in Latin music. Like it just, it's a partly rhythmic function that it's filling. And then it's just filling out the groove and filling out the harmony a little bit while that call and response goes on between the bass and the keyboard. Okay, so now with the guitar in, here's my recreation of the groove from this tune. Right, so now that we've assembled that groovy little jigsaw puzzle, listen to the song from the beginning and just keep your ears open for all of those elements. And then of course, you will also notice the vocals when the vocals come in. So that's really the framework for the song. I mean, there's that's where the instruments go. And once you realize that there are five people, each one of them is playing this sort of special, distinct part in an overall kind of song organism, it's pretty cool to listen to the rest of the recording with that in mind. Of course, I said five people, bass, drums, guitar, keyboard, that's only four. So the fifth role, of course, is Nina Passion, the lead singer, who is handling the melody. And the melody to this song is cool, and actually the melody to the choruses and the melody to the verse fit together. Really Really, just the choruses and the verse of the song fit together in an interesting way, but that's all kind of hinging on the melody. So let's take a look at that melody. Right off the bat, actually, the melody introduces the primary melodic motif of this song. Now remember, a motif is a little musical idea, something that's maybe going to be played with, moved around in different keys, repeated, cut apart, put back together in interesting ways. And the primary motif of Love Fool is this. So the entire verse is built out of that motif. I mean, like, the entire song is built out of that motif. Like, the chorus motif is basically the same. They just go up in the middle. But the verse is where it's introduced, and we're focusing on the verse. So listen to how the verse sounds when I play it on piano, and just keep an ear out for that motif. You know, it kind of just runs through this chord progression, and kind of just keeps repeating itself in, in different keys. 
they're not subtle about it and it's consistent. I mean, the entire melody, like that whole verse, every phrase is made up of that one motif. But it's cool when you hear it because you kind of can see that, you know, all the building blocks are really on display in this song. It's very clearly constructed right before our eyes or, you know, before our ears. There's one new element introduced on that second verse, and it's, I'm pretty sure that that's a guitar, that like, I feel like that's Vincent doing something with like an Ebo or some kind of a like string manipulator. I don't know. It sounds like a guitar to me. It's a cool sound. It's kind of the sixth element in this in this recording, and it comes in several times. This is where it makes its first entrance, just sort of accentuating the melody in weird ways. Mama tells me I should. So it's all been introduced, the rhythm section, the keyboard, the guitars, that extra guitar sound, the melody, Passion's voice, that motif that she's kind of built the verses out of. So it's time to build into the chorus with the pre-chorus. The pre-chorus in Love Fool is actually three bars long, which is a little bit of an odd length for a pre-chorus. It's also a really cool pre-chorus. It's just these three measures sounds like this. may only be three bars long, but that pre-chorus is really cool. It fits a lot of cool stuff uh, into those three bars. So for starters, the guitars change tone. He kind of changes the guitar tone and overdubs the second guitar part. And the two guitar parts there in the left and the right channel, they move in opposition to one another, which if you remember from past episodes, is called contrary motion. One of the guitars is moving along with the bass going up chromatically. It sounds like this. And the other guitar is moving down chromatically, and it sounds like this. So when you put them together, you get a cool little collision course. So now listen to the recording, and just pay attention for that. The guitar that's moving down is kind of over on the left. The bass is moving up, and there's also a guitar part moving up along with it. I'll play along just quietly on piano to bring out the notes. pretty cool. I really like that guitar part. Of course, there is one other thing going on that you may have heard. There's a different keyboard sound in there. It sounds a little bit like a theremin, that uh, sci-fi instrument that we've talked about a few times on the show. I don't know if it's a real theremin or just a keyboard playing one, but it plays a line that sounds kind of like this. Look, I don't have a theremin. I'm just going to whistle and make it sound like a theremin. Anyways, that keyboard part is also kind of going along with the ascending line. It's also ascending chromatically. So it's like a cool extra layer to that ascending, descending, collision course, contrary motion thing that's going on. So listen one more time to the pre-chorus and try to hear all of that stuff. Hear the guitar over on the left that's heading down. Hear how the bass is going up. Hear how the theremin or the theremin sample, the sort of keyboard sound, enters midway through and, and joins in on the ascending line. And also listen to that kind of cool drum fill that sets up the chorus and I'll let it play on into the chorus as well. It's a great pre-chorus leading to a really good chorus. So I cry and I pray and I 
bunch of cool things going on in this chorus. This is a fantastic chorus. It's definitely the sort of centerpiece of the song, the most iconic and memorable thing in the song. That is for a lot of reasons. Let's start with the melody and the vocals. So I've already talked about that cool contrast between Nina Passion's voice, which is this kind of high, light, you know, airy sound, and the darkness and sort of pathetic desperation of the lyrics. And I think that that is, you know, definitely on display in this chorus. That's kind of where it all comes together. She's she's beseeching the person, you know, to love her. And that is actually something she sets up during that pre-chorus. She says, so I cry, I pray, and I beg, love me, love me, say that you love me. So I just want to focus on the delivery of those lyrics that I just said, because what's cool about them is that they come in three different voices. They're all delivered by Nina Passion, but they're delivered in different ways, and it gives a sense of space and almost a sense of there being multiple characters, all of whom use her voice. So the first thing we hear is, so I cry, I pray, and I beg. That's delivered in spoken words. She's not really singing. And also they're using an EQ trick, a trick with the equalizer, to make this vocal part and only this vocal part sound a little bit more like a radio. They've cut off the low and high frequencies, and so it sounds a little pinched, like it's in a little box. It sounds a little bit smaller. Check it out. So if I want to do that here, I just adjust the equalizer on the plugin that I've got, and it makes my voice sound more like I'm on an old-time radio. It makes me sound smaller and more in a box. The reason that that works really well is because it sets up a contrast with what's coming next, which is the line, love me, love me. So it's all about contrast. Lots of things in recording are about contrast. And by boxing in her voice and having her speak down kind of in her lower register, they then set up this big contrast with when she comes in with that love me, love me line, because then suddenly she's harmonized. There are multiple parts. She hasn't been harmonizing in this song yet, but this has been vocally overdubbed. And it sounds kind of more like a choir or like it's coming from, you know, a realm of imagination or inside her mind. So from that solo, boxed-in voice to the multi-tracked vocal harmonies, she then comes out with a third voice, and that is just solo singing, where she sings, Say That You Love Me. So it's like a little journey, right? She starts by just speaking. It kind of sounds like an inner monologue. So I cry, I pray, and I beg. And then it explodes outward with this bigger, you know, just an emotion that's almost abstractly represented by those overdubbed harmonized vocals. And then she comes out fully singing Say That You Love Me in her own voice. It's a really neat little journey. So when you talk about a song like this with a chorus that everybody knows that was such a big hit, it's little things like that that make the song work better than if they weren't there. Just that little journey into the chorus causes the chorus to blow up. It's a really cool trick. So, you know, whether you're aware of it or not, your ear is following along on that little journey just with the lead vocals. And of course, there are a lot of other things happening as well in the rest of the band. So let's break down what has changed. One thing that hasn't changed actually is the drums. So we can just start there. The drums are still doing kind of the same thump, the same pop, and the same sizzle, still 16th notes on the hi-hat, still putting the snare drum in the same place, still four on the floor down there in the kick. 
The bass, however, is different in a crucial way that kind of, you know, informs how this whole chorus works. The bass is playing twice as much. No longer is the bass leaving all that space uh, that was there during the verses. During the chorus, the bass just plays straight through. It sounds like this. It's such a crucial difference from the verse, and it's the biggest thing that gives this chorus such a different energy, is the bass is now just playing a steady bass line, which makes the whole thing just feel much more danceable and much more lively. couple more elements to go over on this chorus. The most notable one, of course, is the guitar. Now, the guitar, remember, on the verse was playing just those little two-note figures that were almost more rhythmic than harmonic. And then the bass was leaving space for the keyboard to come in. So now the bass isn't leaving that space. We're on a much more traditional dance groove, which means the guitar has begun playing a much more traditional kind of funky dance guitar part. Now there is one more thing going on, and it's actually happening in the bass. I'm curious if you can hear it. I've noticed that the keyboard player isn't really doing anything on this chorus, and I don't know if the keyboard player is responsible for the sound. I think this might just be a bass pedal, like a pedal that the bass player is hitting to trigger the sound. But listen one more time to the chorus and listen to the bass part in particular. See if you can hear what's slightly different about the sound. So if you can hear underneath the bass, there's this kind of synthy sound. It's like meow, bow, bow. It sounds kind of like a bass pedal to me. There are a few different bass pedals that do this kind of a thing, but um, it sounds basically like this. Again, it's a subtle thing, and I do think, I think this is like some sort of a bass auto wah synth pedal or something. I'm just kind of like approximating it using a synth, but you can hear it over on the right. It's down in the bass and it comes in on the chorus. It's just one more little sonic element that differentiates the chorus from the rest of the song and kind of increases the intensity. So that's all the elements of the chorus. We're going to listen back to it. Now I want you to listen to all of that. We're going to hear the pre-chorus first, then the chorus. We're going to hear the guitar going down and the guitar going up, the synth that comes in to, to go along along with the guitar that's going up. We're going to listen to how the vocals are mixed so that the vocals are kind of in that box and then they open, open up, up to the, the big harmonized, you know, two, two harmonized parts part. and then the solo part coming out of it. Check out how the bass starts playing more, how the drums stay the same, how the guitar shifts to a kind of a dance, you know, strumming pattern and also listen to how the melody is still just that same motif that was introduced in the verse. It's just moved up and it's in a kind of brighter, higher place. Listen for all of that. Here we go. That's everything that happens on the chorus to Love Fool. And while it may seem like a lot of things because I went through them all that way, we actually covered every single element that's in, which isn't actually something we always do on this show, because there aren't actually that many things going on. It's just that each one is so carefully placed and clearly mixed and performed that it's very important to the overall tapestry of the sound. Now, remember, the keyboards weren't in during the chorus, and there is a bridge here. I guess you'd call it the bridge. It's four bars long, 
and it kind of counts. It happens right after the first chorus, which is a sort of unusual place for a bridge. And um, it comes in with the keyboards. You know, it's a, a different chord, different little chord progression, just four bars long, but it's nice sounding and it's pretty different. Give it a listen. Kind of a little remix of a whole bunch of elements that have been in the song before. First of all, you have Nina singing, So I Cry and I Beg, but she's singing it this time, though that filter is still on her voice, so it's, she sounds a little bit like she's in a little box. The keyboard is back in, and it's this really big sound. You can kind of see why the keyboard would have laid out on the chorus, because the chorus is so much more rhythmic. You have that rhythmic strumming guitar part. Everything is kind of really bouncing along. The keyboard part in particular is so much more of a big splash of water almost that having it come in after the chorus is it, it's a really clear signal that we're in a new section. So the other thing that's in is that sound that I'm thinking is a guitar, but might be a keyboard, but I think it sounds like a guitar to me. And it's actually playing that melodic motif that we've heard mostly sung. So while Passion is singing a different part, there's an instrumental version of the main melodic motif happening over there in the right channel. very cool and it accentuates something about that motif that I like, which is that a lot of times it actually starts on the seventh. Now what do I mean by that? Okay, so in a chord you have usually three notes in a basic chord. That's called a triad. There's the one, then there's the three, and then there's the five. What that means is, you know, if you go up a scale, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, Depending on what key you're in, you know, a different note will correspond to a different number in the scale. So then you just refer to those notes by that number. So when I say one, three, and five, that's what I mean. The first, the third, and the fifth note. However, you can also have a seventh chord, and that has a seventh in there as well. So the one, the three, the five, and the seventh. Now, because I know that some people listening to this have pretty good ears, you're probably hearing sometimes I'm playing a ninth on these chords, so some of these are actually ninth chords. That just means there's one more note on top. I'm going to treat these as seventh chords. We're going to talk about them like they're seventh chords, though sometimes in this song they are using ninth chords, which just has the ninth on top of the seventh. Each chord tone that you add, in addition to one, three, five, kind of increases the complexity, but the seventh is really that very first Rubicon that you cross. Now, of course, by adding the seventh, you're making the chords slightly more complex, and seventh chords do turn up in, you know, rock music, but they're more common to kind of pop music and Tin Pan Alley songs, anything that's sort of descended from jazz in that world. That's sort of where you hear a lot more, you know, minor seventh and major seventh chords, and there are a lot of those chords in this song. The first chord of the song is an A minor seventh. That phrase in the verse, it resolves to a C major seventh. And here on the bridge, we start at an F sharp minor seventh. It sounds like this which is really nice. And also that melody that's playing starts up on the seventh. So it really accentuates that seventh scale degree, the seventh in the chord, and the fact that this is a seventh chord, which is sort of a richer, more full sound than if it were just a triad. So basically not only are they playing those richer, bigger sounding seventh chords in the rhythm section, the melody itself and the motif that the melody is based around starts up on the seventh, on the minor seventh of a minor seventh chord. And so I think that that's kind of what gives it that dreamy kind of spacious feeling that just feels a little bit more romantic and a little bit more rich than if it started, you know, on the one or the three or the five. 
Now, of course, that richness, remember, is being kind of subverted because it's such a lush, beautiful sound that you would think it would go with a nice, beautiful love song when, in fact, this is like not a nice, beautiful love song at all. And it's important to keep reminding yourself of that as you listen to this immaculately laid out, beautifully sung tribute to desperate loneliness. So after that bridge, the chorus repeats, and they find a cool way out of the chorus and back to the verse. So that's a nice little turnaround there at the end. A turnaround is usually just kind of a little chord progression that goes at the end of a chorus or at the end of a phrase to get you back to the beginning. You know, it turns you around. And I like this chord progression. It's three chords. They sound like this. It goes A to D minor to E augmented. So that's one to four minor to five augmented. melody just really brings out that chord progression and if you remember this from the I think first Q&A episode I ever did on this show I talked about four minor used in this kind of a way and it's a really cool sound and her melody actually accentuates the movement if it goes from an F sharp to an F natural which sort of emphasizes that D minor which is the four minor sound so it's a really nice uh, little turnaround if you add the melody in just very classic sounding and I dig it So a funny function of the fact that Love Fool puts its bridge after its first chorus is that when the second verse comes along, it's actually just the same as the first verse and there aren't a lot of new elements introduced to the song, really all the way to the end. So we get some new lyrics in there that add, you know, more context to the story. That weird electric guitar sound is doing some slightly different things, but by and large, it's the same verse and before long, it's time for the pre-chorus again. It's a very carefully put together song, but it's also a pretty simple one, at least from a structural standpoint. There's not that many different parts, and once you know them all, especially because the one new section, the bridge, gets in and out so quickly, near, kind of near the beginning of the song, the final chorus takes all of those things and repeats them. Of course, it repeats the main melody and the motif. It then repeats the bridge. Passion stretches a bit vocally, and then it's time for them to do the turnaround again. And that's the song, so carefully put together that when it arrives where it's going, it feels completely logical. It's a fine centerpiece for one of my favorite albums, a marquee stop on a tour of the many dark sides of love, meticulously arranged, beautifully written, and perfectly performed. And even as it ends, it wonderfully sets up 
the next track on the album. And that'll do it for my analysis of Love Fool by The Cardigans, a song you've probably heard before but that you will hopefully hear differently after this episode, and for real, go listen to that album, it's so good. Thank you everyone for listening. I I feel like I don't say that enough. Maybe I do, but thanks for listening to this show. I hear from so many people. They share their musical journeys with me, and it feels really great to be even a small part of that. As always, you can reach me at strongsongspodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Kirk, K-I-R-K, Hamilton, or on Instagram at Kirk underscore Hamilton. And you can support me making this show at patreon.com slash strongsongs. This episode's outro soloist is Portland trombonist Kyle Molitor, who is a bad mother and plays in a bunch of groups around town. Find his links down in the show notes, and I'll see you in two weeks for yet another Strong Song.